to Conversation 360 Podcasts and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase the people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what's taking place between and in these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. We in our generation are very powerful politically and economically, but the Chinese feel that they have many more thousands of years of dominance uh, uh, in the world than us. And I think that's gonna, that's gonna be a friction point going forward. Much of what the Chinese see is censored, so I don't think they know too much about the, uh, the US. But I think the bargain in China still exists. The government basically says, you can do anything you want in the economy, basically, and earn as much money as you want or can, as long as you don't threaten our control politically. Those are the words of Eric Hansen, an investment manager who grew up in Burma and spent formative years in China with a mother who taught English and a journalist father who wrote a book on their life in Asia entitled Human Endeavor. Eric lives now in Vermont, but continues to spend time in China where he has investments in numerous companies. He speaks both English and Mandarin, and joined me from Burlington, Vermont, for this Conversation 360. We'll talk about these topics that he mentioned and many more. So let's get started. Welcome to Conversations 360 and this Asia and the West series, Eric. Thank you. So when we talk about the conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what comes to mind for you? What, what does that mean? Well, the first, uh, the first important thing to remember is a lot, uh, we have been the dominant economy, political, and the dominant political force in the world for 100 years now, the United States. But if you go back 500 years, it was China that was by far the dominant uh, uh, economy in the world. And their history goes back four and 5,000 years, if, may, if many Chinese will, will remind you of that. So to some extent, one, of the, one big co- uh, thing of the context is that, yes, we in our generation are very powerful politically and economically, but the Chinese feel that they have many more thousands of years of dominance uh, uh, in the world than us. And I think that's going to that's be a friction point going forward. So how has that dialogue the, with, with friction and all, has it shifted at all during the last decade? And if so, in what direction? Well, I think the, uh, for me, as China gets more powerful economically, it gets more powerful politically. And that's being shown now today, uh, slowly but surely, and in the future will be shown more. I think the Chinese, most countries are very patriotic, very nationalistic. China is exceptionally so, I think. And uh, therefore, as they get more power economically, they will show more power politically. Well, I imagine, because I, I met you through a friend who tells me that uh, you're, you're so knowledgeable about that part of the world. I imagine that when you're here in America, people think you can explain all things Asian, especially China, and vice versa a bit. Um, how accurate do you think the Chinese understanding of the West is? 
I don't think it's, I don't know personally, but from what you read about the, how the uh, Chinese inter closely monitored and, uh, uh, and censored, I don't think they know much about the U.S. at all. I think they hear a lot of stories about crime, about danger in the United States. Um, no, I don't think they know the picture. I was, I host occasionally Chinese high school students or college students who are uh, more and more coming to the U.S. And in my office, I have a picture, the famous, I think it was a French photographer who took the picture of the single man who stopped the three tanks in Tiananmen Square during the Tiananmen crisis and where he stood right in front of him, the tanks stopped, he climbed up, looked down the turret hole or looked inside the, 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 uh, the, the tank, got down and walked off. Nobody's, can, nobody knows what happened to him, but it was a phenomenal picture. And these high school students who were, this was a year ago, who were 15, 18 from a top high school in Guangzhou in southern China, had never seen that picture. I mean, it's iconic. You know, uh, many, many people in the West have seen that picture. And so I think much of what the Chinese see is censored. So I don't think they know too much about the, uh, the U.S. But I would add one, one point here. Uh, the U.S. knows very little about China. You know, uh, how many people in the United States have a passport? It's estimated between 30 and 35 percent. We are a very provincial country. Uh, the world has to come to us using our language, English, and because we're the largest economy in the world, they have to come and do business here. We know very little about China or even the rest of the world. That is so true. Now, Eric, it happens that the very first sentence of this answer of yours, which was terrific, um, got somehow cut off in, in mid-sentence, and that was when you said um, Chinese is, uh, the Chinese are, uh, a high economy, but they don't know about the U.S. at all. Could you just give me that sentence again? After that, I have about your hosting Chinese high school students and so on, but give me that first bit again. I can ask you the question again, and that is, how accurate is China's perception of the West? Uh, I don't think it's very accurate. I'm, I'm no expert in this, but from what you hear, the Chinese Internet is heavily censored and monitored. And I think the stories they receive are not necessarily uh, the, the full picture. Great, thanks. So let's talk about what's on the mind of many who have an interest in China, and that is the current uh, slowdown, if you want to call it that, in the Chinese economy. From, from your perspective, as an investor, as someone interested in that part of the world, what is happening and how is that impact being felt? Well, I think, number one, the Chinese government uh, and uh, all through the communist period and, and now also fear one thing more than anything else, and that is instability. They remember the 1800s where you had people in different parts of China and uh, mobilizing and causing problems to the government and eventually overthrowing um, uh, the emperor and or the, the system, uh, the, uh, the system that existed in China. And I think the Chinese do not want to tolerate instability at all. And the way they have been able to counter that is to say, we will get employment for as many people as possible and let them earn as much money as they can. And they're going to be happy. So the slowdown is threatening that. China needs to move from man low-cost manufacturing to higher value-added manufacturing and the service sector. And by doing that, they're going to have to lay off many, many people in these very bloated state operations. 
And when they do that, that has the potential of causing instability. And as we know, when you move from low value manufacturing to high value manufacturing, not everybody is going to be able to move up. The person working the line, making the tennis sneakers or whatever they're making is not going to be the person to design the next uh, semiconductor chip. So there's going to be a lot of discombobulation in the economy and the Chinese are afraid of that. So that's already happening on some level, is it not? I'm interested, especially in your your thoughts about individuals. You say, We know now that people born in the last 30 years in China have seen nothing but exponential growth for, for, for their lifetime, even though their families, their parents may have worked on an assembly line or agri- in agriculture. So what is the mood there around the very phenomenon that you're talking about that makes the government uh, nervous? How, how are individuals feeling from what you know? Well, uh, from and I'm not on the ground there every day, so I don't know, but I think it's being reflected in a couple of areas. First of all, in employment, there is the slowdown in exports from China or in the internal local economy has affected employment. I think, uh, secondly, uh, there is much um, anger about the various uh, uh, incompetencies of the government. They haven't been able to uh, get the food supply to be clean and healthy. Uh, They haven't gotten uh, uh, any handle, a big handle on pollution, either air pollution or water pollution or chemical pollution. And so I think there is dissatisfaction there. But I think the bargain in China still exists. The government basically says you can do anything you want in the economy, basically, and earn as much money as you want or can, as long as you don't threaten our control politically. And I think that bargain still is in place, and I don't think that's threatened yet. So, but is it not true that individuals have become more vocal about their concerns? I'm, I'm especially interested, you mentioned the Tiananmen Square situation about now. What about their willingness to speak up to authority? I know most Westerners view China as reluctant, Chinese as reluctant to do that, and they read of punishment to those who take on the government. Is that, how does that factor in here? Well, I'm, uh, I, uh, again, have not studied this as closely as some, but the Chinese government has done a brilliant, has, has, has a brilliant record of just letting enough steam out of the pot so that uh, people feel that they are being heard in some way. Uh, they, um, they don't clamp down draconianly on everything. They let a lot of the, uh, the protests, be they, they rural people who are protesting their land being taken over for apartment towers and not being paid much. They let the people protest about the chemical pollution or water pollution, and they do some things about it. The Chinese have been quite brilliant at being able to let just the amount of protest happen without it becoming a large-scale issue. So what about immigration? We, we know that some people feel that China's brightest and wealthiest are beginning to leave the country. Is, is that the Western press or is that actually happening? Do you happen to know? I think it's happening, but uh, you wonder how, how much of it is um, forever. For instance, there are a lot of people who are wealthy 
who do not know which way the winds are going to blow next year, next month, and therefore would like to get to Vancouver, would like to get to Hong Kong, or now beyond to San Francisco, the, uh, the and to California. But when they get there and buy a house and make sure that their children can go to school there in the United States, or be it Australia or England, they often turn right around and go back and do business in China, because China is where it's at where they can earn the most money. And uh, so it's not as if they have come to the US or Australia or other places and say, oh my gosh, China's a mess. I'm, I'm not, I don't wanna be there anymore. It's like they wanna make sure they've got their feet in both camps, but uh, they are still very aligned to China, I think. So for those who remain in China, and it sounds like it's, it, it, it's the bulk of a very large population, some would say that a crucial requirement perhaps now more crucial than ever in the last several decades, is for China to become truly innovative in order to solve its pressing and large size issues like pollution that you mentioned, like healthcare issues. And we also know that there are a number of companies there like Alibaba and Tencent that are seriously innovative. Your investing in companies there, has that, has that been along the lines of innovation? Is there, do you have a thought about that? Uh, no, I think um, I don't think it's about innovation as much as uh, at least the ones we've been interested in catering to that middle class that is dynamically growing. Just consumer purchasing power in China, be it food, be it automobiles, be it uh, clothing, be it whatever. The Chinese have a massive consumer sector now. So that's what I would say. Now, the problem with that, as you probably know and have heard, is there are hundreds, still hundreds of companies uh, that are listed or uh, that are Chinese company, do the vast majority of their business in China, but are listed in the United States, either on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. The problem has been, and most all, many of these are private companies, which are exciting, but many of these have turned out to be frauds or there have been accounting issues or there have been other management issues. And so many Americans or many investors in general say, look, I'm not going to touch a Chinese company, period. Don't uh, don't tell me about the excitement there. Now, some of the newest big boys, so to speak, Alibaba, Tencent, you mentioned, uh, these kinds of companies have come more recently to the market. And these may be all right, or investors are thinking these may be all right. But um, Baidu, another example. But the earlier ones, many of them, even if they're good or bad, it doesn't matter, are selling as if they are bad because nobody knows whether to trust this. And the reason for this, I think, is that if you are a private entrepreneur in China and you've been able to buy state assets and create a private company and then raise money for this in the United States, well, you still have this top-down mentality. You're the emperor. You're the head of the family. You're the head of the company. You're not in a pluralistic, democratic society. And so when you did make a decision, you make a decision. If you want to sell some of your personal real estate assets to the company at an inflated over the market price, well, why shouldn't you? You own 40, 60 percent of the company. You know why? Now, in America, that would be an absolute no, no. You would have to get board approval and this and that and fair appraisals and whatnot. In China, it's like, uh, hey, I own 60 percent of this company. Why can't I do this? So uh, it's a different mindset, and, uh, and it's been difficult to, for investors in China.
So that different mindset, I want to, we mentioned, you mentioned earlier that it wasn't so much about innovation, but I'm interested nonetheless in your thoughts about how the Chinese view innovation, because some people feel that they, they actually define innovation differently than we do in the West. Do you have some thoughts about that, that for them, it's more a sense of evolution, actually improving on something that has already occurred, in fact, something somebody else may have invented, um, whereas we look at it more as a truly disruptive thing. Any thoughts around that? Well, I think the Chinese will get to the truly disruptive stage at some point. But right now, I'd say innovation or new things are standing on the shoulders of what came before. They're trying to outdo the Apple uh, iPhone or whatever it is, trying to build a better car. And the Chinese have been marvelous at manufacturing, at doing that, to building the next high quality thing. And I think they will, that's how their innovative economy will grow. First, by just improving by inches and feet what other people have done, and then eventually winning the Nobel Prizes and this or that, um, and becoming more what we consider kind of disruptive innovation. So, where will that increased innovation come from in China, uh, Eric? Will it be the expats who bring in Western thinking? That's happened certainly thus far. Will it be the young that have been educated in the West who return and eventually lead companies there? Or will it be homegrown? Mm. Well, that's interesting. I don't think it's going to be expats. Um, I think the, the old days of the Chinese companies employing expats because they had the, they had the market knowledge, they had the intelligence, they had this or that, the Western experience. Um, I think that's over with. They're, you have to pay too much to an expat in China to be there. I think it's either going to be overseas Chinese who move back to China, but even they, have been, so to speak, corrupted in their thinking. I think when an overseas Chinese who's been in the U.S. for 10 years goes back to China, the Chinese know that they're not, they're not, they're different. They're somehow different. And so I think it's going to be local homegrown people. Look at the, uh, the 10 cents, the Alibabas, the Baidus, they've all been uh, set up by uh, Chinese who might have had some foreign experience, but not a lot. And um, I think it's going to that's where it's going to primarily come from. So it's especially intriguing, given the fact that Alibaba is run by a man who was, in fact, a grade school teacher, uh, which brings to mind the educational system in China, which, um, as you know, is is one based mostly on rote learning as opposed to the sort of um, objective trying to teach people how to ask the questions as opposed to giving them the answers. Is that, will that have to change? Or do you think, given your answer, that it's sufficiently good that they'll still come up with enough of the Alibaba types to get where they want to get? I think they'll get where they, where they want to get with uh, that. I've read, and I've read some newspaper reports. I think the New York Times was reporting that studies have shown uh, a, a kind of looking for the creative thinking of high school students and college students, and that, that there is very little difference uh, between the creative thinking of high school students in China and the U.S., that uh, even with their rote learning, that they are quite uh, creative. What uh, seems to happen is that at the college level, China has not moved. Uh, uh, the U.S. has been, or Western education has been, so what much further along. China is building colleges like crazy now. But you don't create a Harvard 
or any kind of quality uh, place in five or ten years, I don't think. Uh, and so it's going to be so many, I think many of the Chinese who are going to do creative things are going to uh, are going to come uh, uh, possibly through American education, but move back to China very quickly. Mm. So what about the increased pressure regarding privacy issues? You know, in the West, we're crazy around privacy issues. We think that um, everybody is looking at our data and that makes us very concerned. Is there a difference between that and what's happening in China? I don't know, but I would say uh, China is China. And the way it... Uh, it's governed the way it behaves, the way it polices its uh, its um, its citizens, all that. You know, I don't think we can comment too much about it. I mean, uh, we're not going to have any effect on it. But I don't sense that the Chinese have uh, um, have become uh, revolutionary about it, about the uh, the amount of uh, of uh, policing of the internet and so forth. I think they're kind of accepting it or going around it or whatever. It's just a fact of life. So it sounds like, midst all of this, that you are basically pretty optimistic about China's future. I don't know. This is going to be the test. Uh, so far, you can't question them. You know, since 1979, they've pulled more people out of poverty than any civilization or government or country in history. This is unbelievable. And how they have done it, growing 10% and now 6% or whatever the number is, year in, year out, without failure, without collapse. No other country seems to have done it. And until they stumble, I think you almost have to give them the benefit of the doubt. But the real test will come now, or maybe in the future, when they have to make the make the move from just rapid all-out growth to now reordering the economy towards the service sector? And will they have the courage to put the people through the pain necessary to do that? The layoffs, the re-education of people, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be painful. And whether they're going to think that they don't want to put up with this instability, that will be the test because so far you saw this year when the economy started slowing down, they go back to the traditional levers. Well, throw some money at infrastructure. Let's build some more high-speed trains or another airport, and that's the answer. Well, in the future, that won't be the answer, and uh, be interesting to see if they can make the next transition. Uh, it's really, it's really fascinating to watch. Are there other issues that you'd like to mention, Eric, regarding this whole eats meets west? Especially, especially China, and vice versa. What's your thought? Well, one one thing I would uh, uh, mention is that the Chinese, and I don't know if I'm giving them too much of a benefit of the doubt here, they do have a very long-term time horizon. They seem to play the long game. And whereas we play the quarter to quarter or the year to year or the, the election to election game, uh, the Chinese, for instance, they're doing this Obor thing, one uh, one road, one belt system, uh, trying to have a, uh, uh, a belt across Central Asia and a road around ch to Europe uh, by, uh, by sea. You know, these are very long-term things, and the Chinese seem to be comfortable with this. Um, and, uh, and that may be a, a play into their favor, that they don't mind being patient. That would be number one. Um, and number two, I guess, is... Uh, you know, how will the uh, the cohesiveness of China stay together? You know, income inequality is supposed to be horrible now in China. We're one of the worst in the world. And if you combine that with 
some kind of explosive instability caused by something, either by the by the peasant or the rural areas rising up against uh, 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 people in the city taking everything from them, or the middle classes getting angry about pollution or this or that. Um, that will be the the test whether China can keep the stability intact. So, if you're a betting man, what do you think? <laughs> well, I'm still betting. A hundred year bet is easy since I won't be around <laughs> to see it. But I'm still betting that this is the century of the U.S. and China, and how that plays out year after year, month after month, will be the the interesting test. Thank you so much, Eric. I look forward to. Learning more about whether your predictions are correct. It may take us a while to find out. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening. <laughs>